Hello, and welcome to the New Hope Church Podcast. Whether you are a member of our church family, either in person or online, or just checking us out for the first time, we believe that you belong here at New Hope Church, and we hope that this message speaks to you today. Don't forget to check us out online at newhopechurch.tv, and we'd love to connect with you on social media at New Hope Church TV. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Welcome to New Hope Church. My name is Mike. I'm a Friendswood Campus Pastor. Super honored and excited to be here with you guys. Our 288 campus, Friendswood Campus, Alvin Camper Campus, Webster Campus, uh, Pearland Campus, those of you in Weibo Bible Church in Weibo, Montana, and those of you joining us online, once again, I want to welcome you. I'm so glad to be here. Can I just say that? I'm excited to be in church this morning, church family. And I know we, we say this, but man, to be in a country where we can serve the living God with no one telling us we can or can't, what a blessing. But I do need to say this, who was here last week and was it not awesome? Was last week and not incredible? Man, Becca Cook's story was so amazing, the power of God changing one person and just that message being shared. And uh, what an incredible story. I kept thinking about it as I was thinking about today because I thought, well, and today I'm here. I don't have that kind of incredible story, but you know what? Praise God, we're using the same Bible they used last weekend today. The same very Bible that the God says his word does not return void. The same very Bible that says it is sharper than in any two-edged sword. So we're sharing God's word. And praise God he's here today like he was last weekend. But I do need to do this. Uh, I, as I reflect on last week's service, man, Becca Cook's story really inspired me. It was so exciting hearing how God can transform the life of one person. And you may or may not know this, but God is still transforming the lives of people today. He's changing hearts. He's taking people and making them look like a new person in Christ. While you turn your phone on or you turn the news on, social media, man, you look at it and it looks like the world is dying. <laughs> it looks like things are over, like the hope of the next generation is gone. But I'm here to tell you today that it is not because we have Jesus. And you know what? God is going to continue changing lives and transforming hearts until he returns. And church family, I can say this. That's good news, is it not? So today I have the honor of kicking off a brand new series called Until the Day. And until the day, more specifically, we need to live lives of faith, love, and hope. We got to keep living even in the midst of hard times, right? And uh, maybe some of you are asking, well, Pastor Mike, what's, what does that mean? Until what day? It's the day when Christ returns for his church, sometimes called the rapture, sometimes called the, the Lord's day, sometimes called the second coming of Christ. But as believers in Christ, it's a day that we can't wait. Can I get an amen? amen? When Jesus comes back for us and we see him face to face, for those who are in Christ, it is going to be a great day. And can I just say this and breathe? He can't come soon enough, right? So when discussing the second coming of Christ, there's often kind of two extreme schools of thought. There's the one of, hey, we don't even need to talk about this anymore. It's old school. It's irrelevant. It's out of date. And then there's another extreme school of thought where it's all we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the second coming of Christ every single Sunday, and we're going to quit our jobs, and we're going to sit here and wait till Jesus returns. I grew up in a church like that. <laughs> 
And let me just tell you something. It was more scaring than caring most of the time because then folks were preaching and sweating and screaming. I just tell you, man, uh, we knew a lot about the second coming of Christ. But I'll tell you this. Let me give you a few Bible uh, kind of facts about the second coming of Christ. It's mentioned in 23 of the 27 New Testament books. It's referenced in three, over 300 times in the 260 ta- chapters of the New Testament, which makes it about one in every 30 verses. It's also referenced in the entire Bible over 1,800 times. And I know some of you engineers and theologians, you're thinking, I'm going to go back and I'm going to figure it out. Well, Jesus said, you can't do that. No one knows the day or the hour, so don't waste your time spinning your wheels. While there are signs we can see, yeah, that's true. It doesn't matter because we will not know the day or the time. The Bible says even the angels in heaven don't know this time. But what it does say about us is that we need to be ready for Christ's return. So today, if you have your Bibles or your Bible app with you, we're going to be in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And uh, we're going to see today that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church at Thessalonica. And uh, actually, if you want to see a map here, here's where it actually is. And so just so you kind of get a reference point, uh, modern day, this is actually where Greece is. Thessalonica is right here. And so this is modern day Greece. That would be Turkey. And this would be Italy right here. And so Thessalonica was a large city in the ancient world, over 200,000 people here. This would uh, originally be part of what's called this area in Macedonia, which is a part of the Roman Empire. And uh, so there's a major road that comes through here, super important, it's called the Via de Ignatia, and it crosses right through here, and it hits right on the tip of Thessalonica, the agencies here, Adriatic Sea. And, and, and the reason all this makes such a big point is because these folks were a bright, shining example of the Roman Empire. They worshiped the emperor and the goddess. These were their gods. And so now in Acts chapter 17, we actually get a viewpoint of when Paul, Timothy, and Silas go and visit this church. And uh, man, they get there and they go straight to the synagogue. And they are so excited. They start telling people, and it says in, in Acts that they went there for three Sabbaths, which is like three plus weeks. They start telling them about Jesus. They start telling people, you remember Jesus who was crucified? Well, guess what? He didn't stay in the grave. He's raised from the dead. And because he's raised from the dead, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah that everyone has been waiting for. And he will forgive you of your sins. And in only three short weeks, guys, a brand new church is started in the Roman Empire at Thessalonica. These guys get fired up and they want to know Christ and make him known. That's right. It is so awesome. They let everybody know who Christ was. But just, just like uh, always happens, the moment God starts moving, the enemy starts cooking something. And three thugs or some thugs are hired to knock these three men off, the disciples, and they end up having to leave. And a few months later, Paul sends a guy named Timothy, one of his disciples, he sends him back to go check on what's going on in this little, this little place, this city, in this little young church. And the report Timothy comes back with is amazing. He says, Paul, I know we were there only three weeks but is it, a, it is a thriving and growing church. People are coming to know Christ and to make him known. It is amazing. And so what does Paul do? Paul's so excited. He writes this letter to the church. And this is how it starts. 
Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to rest here real quick. He says, grace and peace to you. Listen, guys, the word grace is the Greek word charis, and it means the unmerited favor, goodness of God. You didn't do anything to earn it. God gives it to you because he loves you. And the word peace is uh, something Jews would say, they say shalom. And it's, it's a balance of all things in the world. It means that even though there's chaos in your life, you can be at rest. You can be solid because God is with you. Notice what he didn't say. By the way, this is his greeting, his way of saying hi, grace and peace. What he didn't say is peace first. Why? Because before you can experience God's peace, you have to first accept his grace. And in verse 2, this is what he says. We always thank God for all of you continually mentioning you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father, your work produced by all together, faith. Your labor prompted by love. And your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what Paul is teaching us today. First, while you are living your life until the day, keep living a life of faith. Keep living a life of faith. That's the first thing he's telling us. So the word faith in Greek is the word pistis. Fun to say, pistis. And uh, all of us have some type of faith. If you think about it, in every one of our campuses, you guys came in and you sat in a chair. You didn't think twice about it. You trusted that the chair would take care of you. The word pistis literally means you believe in something so much, you trust it. You trust the chair that you're sitting in, or I hope you do. If not, meet with one of our maintenance volunteers and they can help you out awesome, awesome people. Truth is, the Christian life is a life of faith. It's a life of taking steps. Sometimes you have to get out of the boat, right, to engage with our Heavenly Father. So there's this cool story in the Bible about a guy named Peter. And Peter and some of his buddies are hanging out in a boat, waiting for Jesus. It gets kind of late. You know how it is into the early hours, if you've ever been in a boat or late at night, it kind of gets foggy. It's a little spooky and murky. And they're out there. And what do you know? Pete looks up and he says, I think I see a ghost. And and so they're out there, and it's like an episode of Scooby-Doo, right? And uh, in Matthew 14, Jesus looks back at him, and this is what he says. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. He establishes that it's him. Hey, guys, it's not a ghost. It's me. And in verse 28, <laughs> typical Peter fashion, Lord, if it's you, Pete replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Jesus says in 29, come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. And I just want to stop right there for a moment. Because this is the thing. Any of y'all ever been fishing at night? Anybody been fishing at night? Okay, nobody fishes. Okay, good. Praying for y'all right now. Well, okay, this is the thing. If you know anything about fishing or the sea or the ocean, it's dark, and there's like big critters in there that don't like us all the time. Okay? In fact, most of the time. And so one night, me and my buddy Derek, um, actually, when I was a kid, I used to surf at night, which is so stupid. Um, but it was fun, but it was so scary. But, but one time, me, my, my friend Derek, we, he goes to the Friendswood campus, and he's my fishing buddy. And uh, we were out there. It was late. I think it might have been 2 or 3 in the morning. I don't really remember uh, because we're, we get off on Thursdays, and he just meets me on Thursday night. So we stayed through the night fishing. And we were in the bay in uh, Kima and hitting the lights. And those lights are kind of bright, so they, give, they illuminate some light to everywhere around. And we're there, and it's dark, and it's quiet. And I know, don't think I'm dumb, but this is just what came out of my mouth first. So I see this giant, what looks like a king cobra. I know, I know, I know. So my first response was, 
King Cobra or something like that, a cobra. I don't know why it just happened. And uh, turns out it was not a cobra. It was a sea otter. I didn't even know those are a thing. I'm telling you, the thing raised up. Listen, guys, uh, it's just, it was just my first response. Of course, he laughed quite a bit still till today. But this is the thing. You don't get in the water at night or any, any type of water if you know there's things lurking beneath the waters. Peter didn't care because he saw Jesus. Jesus called him on the water, and that changed everything. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and say, Lord, there's a king cobra out there. No, I'm joking. And Lord, save me. Save me. It's shortest prayer in the Bible, by the way. For those of you who are like, hey, I don't know how to pray. I don't do that kind of stuff. Well, guess what? God's not into big, eloquent prayers anyway. He said, Lord, save me. What does Jesus do? Jesus saves him. Of course, he gave him a lesson and said, you have little faith. I truly believe this, that God isn't just calling Peter or wasn't just calling Peter to get out of the boat, but he's also calling each and every one of us to take a step of faith. Each of you know your own situation, what you're dealing with, and I 100% believe he's telling you it's time to get out of the boat. You know, we can't just hear the word of God. We've got to be willing to obey it as well. And I'm going to say this from the very words of Jesus to Peter to you. Jesus said this because I know someone needs to hear it. Take courage. Don't be afraid. Go to Jesus. Let's say that one more time. Take courage. Whatever it is you're going through, don't be afraid. Go to Jesus. A step of faith will never be easy, but I promise it will be worth it. It's why even when the apostles were going through such a difficult time, they'd suffered a loss. This is what Jesus said to them. Everything is possible for one who believes, believes. There are so many moments in Jesus's ministry when he, where he encouraged people to have faith. And sometimes he just, he just flat out commanded it. Why? Because without faith, we can't please God. It's why Paul was so excited about this young church at Thessalonica. They were keeping the faith in hard times. That's what chapter one, verse six says. They were going through severe suffering and yet they kept the faith. So you don't know this, or you may not, or you maybe you do, I don't know. Uh, years back, I used to be a college pastor for many, many years when I was in my young days before my hair turned gray. I was taller too. <laughs> Just saying medically, that's what they say. So um, back in the day, I was a college pastor, and uh, man, we used to do this thing where I was at A&M once upon a time, and, uh, and took, I used to take dozens and dozens of college students, and we would go over to South Padre during spring break. Okay, some of you have been there. That's not good. We'll pray for you. Prayer partners right afterwards. So, so what we would do is we would take these college students, we would equip them with like evangelism tools, and then we would give free rides to spring breakers. Uh, uh, when they were going to their parties or when they were going to the club, we'd take them, they'd call us, and, or they'd, we'd, just, we'd be all over the place, and they'd, we'd give them rides. And uh, um, also, we'd cook them pancake breakfasts after their hangovers in the morning. So it was a blast, blast. All week we did this and, and it was pretty wild because you know when we picked them up, they were usually really sober and we'd take them wherever they were. But what we would do is we would share the gospel of Jesus with them. We would pray with them. We would tell them about the Lord. And it was so amazing, especially when we picked them up three or four in the morning and they were just messed up and lit. I mean, it was bad. And they were so sloppy and, and it was crazy, guys. And this is what I mean. They would walk into those vans and there would be moments, I, I kid you not, where we'd pray with them. And I saw a drunk person sober up by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
It was amazing. They'd come to know Christ right there. We'd pray with them. And then we'd tell the folks that were serious about it. Say, hey, listen, if you're serious about the commitment you made to follow Jesus today, of course, we'd tell them, hey, you, gotta, you can't be doing this all week, right? But this is what we'd say is we'd tell them at the end of the week, we're going to meet you at the beach. It's called the, the Coca-Cola area, which is the place where it's the craziest. That's where everybody gets there and does every lewd thing you could imagine. Thousands and thousands of people are on that beach. It's hard to even move. And we tell them, we're going to meet you right there, and then we're going to baptize you if you really want to do that. And so this is one year that we did that. When we got there, here's some kids that I, I got to baptize. I remember he was so pumped. I don't remember his name. Sorry. Um, Lord does. And, and, so, and so we baptized them, and man, it was awesome, guys. And uh, as we're doing this, you got to remember, there are thousands of people, because number one, they think people are taking their clothes off. Um, that's why they're there. But they see that we're baptizing folks. And, and I remember right after I baptized this guy, a guy runs up to me with a beer in his hand. He says, Pastor, I, I want to be baptized. I want to know Jesus. And he throws his beer down. I lead him to the Lord right there. And, and, and no joke, I baptize him, buried with Christ in death, pull him out, raised to new life. And this guy like bounces like a bunny, like out of the water. He's got these crazy hops. He jumps and, and I remember him just yelling and praise and people are screaming and cheering for him. But he, what's crazier, what happens next, he runs to his little group of friends right there that are in the water, watched him get baptized. And no joke, he starts screaming, Jesus is my Lord. I know Jesus. And man, he's, it's just, it's an amazing moment because what happens next is his friends start coming. We start baptizing them. They come to know the Lord, and then we get them connected to a local church in their area. What a powerful moment, guys. I remember moments like that where God was moving in such a way, such huge steps of faith. So the question is this. How much faith do you need, right, to please God? Matthew 17, Jesus said it like this. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And I know this. Here's, if you don't know this, this is about what size of a mustard. This is when I was in Alaska. I'm joking. That's not me. But, but, but this is the thing. I think we focus so often on the mountain and not the mustard seed. Truth is, I, I, Jesus says, how much faith do you need? Just a little bit. Very little bit. The mountains, I don't know if it's a literal mountain, but I know this. I truly think mountains are symbolic of all the hard times that we're going through. It's the obstacles in our life. It's the trials. It's the pain. It's looking back at the failures. And, and God, can I do it? But Jesus is saying, all you need is this much. What's amazing is, by the way, that seed doesn't stay that small. It actually grows into a larger bush. It's a giant bush. It's pretty wild. So your faith is like a muscle. It grows. I'll give you a few ministry facts if you've ever wondered about this. 80% of people, just like me, who enter the ministry leave with an only five years. Think about that. That's, that's, that's not a good career choice, it sounds like, because <laughs> it doesn't sound like you're going to make it. If you knew someone in the ministry and they're going past five years, they're beating the statistics. For every 20 people who enter the ministry, only one retires in it. One. That's a 5% retention rate. That's not a good career choice if you tell me. Why? Because living a life of faith is hard. Ministry is hard. It's hard to do this. But God calls us. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, when he described this moment, he said it like this. 
the way to heaven is ascending. Notice he didn't say descending. He said ascending. We must be content to travel uphill, though it be hard and tiresome and contrary to the natural bias of our flesh. Because everything about being American is making it easy and making it to the top. It's not about embracing the hard, the pain. But if you want to follow Jesus, there will be hard times. There will be times when you feel like giving up. It's why we don't have a campus on every single street in America. Because not everybody's going to do it. Not everybody can commit. But I think part of the problem is, is guys, maybe it's our Americanized attitude is we treat God more like a waiter than we do an awesome divine God. Just saying. We go to the restaurant and say, God, I need an order of healing, finances, fix my kid, help my wife, she talks too much. <laughs> Not you, babe. Uh, my husband, I don't, I don't have enough room, Lord. And we get to him and we're like, we're hangry ordering, right? And it's like, God, if you don't get this order right, I don't know what I'm going to do. We, we've said those words. So real quick story. So my, my son, my son, we were at a Chinese restaurant here recently and uh, we got there and uh, I, lo I love what he says. He says, he says, dad, you know what I like about you, mom? You guys don't let things get to you. Because when he said, you know what? I, I I'm sorry. You know what I like about you, mom? I was like, oh boy, here it comes. And he said, y'all don't let things get to you. And I think he was talking about the order because um, they got my rice wrong. They brought his chow mein instead of fried rice. And I'm like, bro, you don't even, I was thinking in my head, you don't even know. They got my chicken wrong. It'd be on. <laughs> anyway, sorry, side, sidebar. So this is the thing. We treat God like a waiter so often, I think. And when he does a good job, what do we do? We go, oh, that a boy God. Oh, I'm a praise God, praise God. And we're on social media and we say, hey, man, we serve an awesome God. And we put our favorite verse, right? Maybe we even tip him. I don't know. Just saying, man. But the moment that he gets the order wrong, ooh, we don't just deny him praise. We raise our fists sometimes. We get real angry. And I see it just from the reviews of New Hope Church sometimes. We go on the internet and we let people know how disappointed we are with God. Church family, we don't have time for this. The king is coming. And he will return. And the last thing we need to be caught with is reviewing God in whatever sort of way or complaining about who he is. We're not just waiting for the day. We got to live in this day because he's coming soon. And, and we're going way too slow. Y'all need to look, listen a little quicker. So while you're living your life until today, keep living a life of love, Paul says. Keep living a life of love. What does he say here? He says your labor prompted by love as he writes to this church. The word love is the word agape in the Greek language, and it's the highest form of love. It's sacrificial love. It means I'm going to love you no matter what. I love what 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 7 through 8, not reading the whole thing, just reading a little passage. It says this. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I love another translation that says love never fails. God's love for you will never fail. It will keep going. There is a guy in uh, America named Sandro Chand, and uh, he actually speaks all over the world on leadership, Christian leadership, and this is what he says about it. He says, the authority by which the Christian leaders lead is not power but love. Not force, but example. Not coercion, but reasoned persuasion. Leaders have power, but power is safe only in the hands of those who humble themselves to serve. What did Paul say earlier? Labor prompted by love. Our service comes from a heart of love. Recently, we had something called Valentine's Day, right? 
Okay, men, y'all need to say something here. So I'll tell you, man, my wife got pink roses, red roses, balloons, sweets. I took the day off for her. I mean, man, we, we did it up. We did all kinds of things. But the truth of the matter is, is I don't got to do those things. I get to do those things. Yeah, yeah. And the ladies are clapping, man. Look at this. Man, I love that woman. I'm so thankful for her. I'm honored that she's my wife. I'm honored that she's my friend. I owe her everything. Well, Jesus paid it all, though, just saying. But it's an honor. It's a labor prompted by love, not the other way around. It's not love prompted by my labor. We're honored, but that's what love does. In fact, you may not have noticed, but I think you did notice. This weekend when you walked in our doors, we're doing something called Team Up. All those tables and banners and all those things, what are we doing? We're inviting people to join the volunteer team at the church. Why? Because love does. Love serves. And I know what some of y'all did. I'm just going to be honest. Oh, honey, honey, get away from them. They're talking, trying to talk to me. You know you did that. You saw those flags. You're like, Let's go to the other door. Listen, church family, this is your church. This is where you come and you get fed the word of God. This is where you grow. This is the bride of Christ. You are called to serve. It's not a cool option on the menu. You'll never experience the fullness and goodness of God's power in your life unless you start serving. Because love does. Love isn't theoretical. It's not something. Oh, so by the way, right after service, make sure you go to those tables and flood them. Just drive them crazy. <laughs> like everybody just go there. And go, we want to serve. Guess what? Easter is coming right around the corner. Let's know Christ and make him known. But love isn't just about saying things. It's about doing things. In fact, I love what the Bible teaches us here, that love forgives, Luke 23, 34. Love sacrifices, John 3, 16. Love builds up, Ephesians 4, 29. Love shows up, Hebrews 13, 5. Love serves, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3, 3. The suffering servant Christ Love doesn't rust, it never gets old, it doesn't expire. Love that. God's love for you will not get old and neither will your love for others when you demonstrate it. In fact, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, I like the way he says it when he talks about creating a loving community. He says, the person who's in love with their vision of community will destroy community. But the person who loves the people around them will create community everywhere they go. And he's talking about Christian community. By the way, this guy gave his life for his brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God in service of the community. People, the Nazis hung him. If you want your family to look more like Jesus, you got to love them. And you know those children sometimes, they don't feel very lovable. Sorry, moment. But you love them like Jesus loves you. You don't measure them by their academics or their physical accomplishments. You don't measure them by stuff. You just love them. Which is why, while you're living your life until the day, Paul points out number three, you got to li keep living a life of hope. Got to live a life of hope. 
You know, what does he tell the church? He says, your endurance inspired by hope. Hope is the fuel that you need to get through hard times. It's the fuel that keeps you going when everything seems rough and like you can't get on. In fact, the Greek word for hope is the word elpis, and it means joyful, confident expectation of eternal salvation. One of the greatest promises that is filled with hope that the Bible tells us is this, that Jesus will come back for his church. And Paul knew this church at Thessalonica was going through a hard time. They were going through suffering and pain and he just wanted to encourage them to keep going. Don't give up. God is with you and you have hope. New Hope Church, God is with you and you have hope, but you must stay the course, remain faithful and keep going. I'll tell you, as parents, one of the biggest things I think every single parent in this room, if we ask them, we want to inspire our children to have hope. Can I get an Amen. The hope that Christ gives us, yes. We want to protect them, equip them, uh, give them all the tools they need to be successful in this life. If you don't know it, our junior high students right now are at Revive being filled with hope. Revive Winter Camp, it's awesome. I'm so excited for them. But you know, I'm going to tell you something, parents. I know I'm going to step on some toes here. But one of the things that I think is sucking the hope out of the next generation is these. Technology and social media. I think the enemy is using it. You may not know this, but if your kid has Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, YouTube, any type of social media, they are being sucked into a world that you have no clue. They are being strategically targeted. There are algorithms created by these creators online that aren't looking out for the best interest of your kids. They are molding and shaping them. And either your kids are being influenced by the word, world or they're being influenced by the word. And Mark Strauss, uh, he's a leading chief technology officer here in the U.S., uh, speaks all around the world about technology, been in the technology sector his entire life, and uh, also happens to be a new hoper. Uh, and uh, one of the things Mark did is uh, just kind of give you a little bit of his resume. If you've ever been to an Astros uh, game, praise God, Rockets, uh, Texans, um, you've seen those Jumbotron, those large screens, right? That's his technology. If you've ever been to uh, uh, Times Square, that's his technology. If you've been to the 9-11 Memorial, uh, that's his technology, those ribbons and all those graphics that you'll see on there. If you've ever been to the subway, anyway, he's all over the place. The guy is a brilliant genius, and I love what he does. In his book, Killer Tech, he actually warns parents of the dangers of technology and influence on their children. This is what he says. What's the best way to create a loyal following? Hit their dopamine centers and make them junkies. Those are our kids. Craving more like users. We now have an entire generation of people raised as passive content consumers addicted to their tech. The outcomes of which we do not yet fully understand. We haven't even begun to see the ramifications of this massive cultural shift. Everything digital has consequences. Everything. You cannot predict the outcomes, consequences, or impact of anything you post on an artificial intelligence. Its algorithm decides it for you. Your job is to protect your kids, not just to please them. The child's brain is easily addicted because technology is designed to be addictive. It is designed to delight and engage, and it does. Parents, we have, are unknowingly creating an entire generation of addicted users. That's scary, man. You know, the American Pediatric Center actually talks about when they talk about technology, they say anywhere from two to three hours after that can be damaging. His research has shown anything past five hours can lead your son or daughter to depression. 
And so while we wait patiently for the Lord to return, church family, our calling is to protect the future generation. So why live a life of faith, love, and hope until the day? Paul says this, I want to remind you, you are chosen by Christ. You're chosen by Christ, guys. Think about that. You know, of all the things God could have chosen in the world, he looked at you and he said, I choose you. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, it says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. The word chosen is the Greek word ekklesia, and it means that you were handpicked by God Almighty. I love that. Because our gospel came to you not simply by words, but also with power. That's the Greek word dunamis. It means where we get the word dynamite. What's the dynamite? Here it is. With the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is dynamite. And deep conviction. By the way, the Holy Spirit convicts you. It does not condemn you. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Man, Paul's telling him. You were chosen by God. I'll never forget this. So I was like 12 years old, and I have uh, two brothers, and well, three brothers, uh, but, but these two used to take me to play football. One was a junior and one was a senior, and they would always bring me, take me out with their friends, and, and you guys probably know how this is going to go uh, next. So they do things, something called picking. They get everybody together, and they go, hey, I want you on my team. I want you on my team. I would either usually not get picked, or I got picked last, but I didn't care. All I wanted to do was play football. And so one day, no joke, so we're out there. It's a Saturday morning, and it's kind of cold, you know, and you can kind of see your breath as you're breathing. One day, one Saturday morning, and it's so great. Um, The biggest, fastest, most athletic of my brother's friends, by the way, he went on to play in the NFL. I'm just joking. I thought he should, though. And he picked me. He picks me first, though. Before he picks everyone else. And can I tell you something, church family? I lit up. I felt like I was 10 feet tall. But I was like, what's wrong with you? (laughs) I'm like, I'm the youngest, the smallest, the least experienced. Are you okay? But the truth is, it made me feel so big. That day, I knew the best brother out there chose me. And all I could do is, I'm telling you, I jumped higher that day. I ran faster, I hit harder, I cut. Man, I felt like Deion Sanders and Bo Jackson in one. And then I was, as I was coming out, people, I was like, I'm Jim Brown, I can keep going. I mean, it was such an incredible day. That day was so good, it, it'll never leave my mind because he chose me. Well, guess what? God knows who you are, that you're undersized. Maybe you think you're not smart enough, fast enough, whatever enough, and yet he chooses you. Why? Because God loves you. He loves you. He sees all your failures and your mistakes and all those things. But he knows in Christ that you can overcome all obstacles, that there's nothing that can stand in your way if you choose him. There's a story in the Old Testament of the Bible. It's uh, by a guy named David. And uh, King David, actually, he eventually becomes king. But uh, God tells the prophet Samuel, he says, hey, I want you to go over to that guy, David's house. His dad's name's Jesse. I want you to go find a king. One of those kids are going to be a king. And so Jesse brings all his boys out. And, uh, and Samuel gets there and he's like, man, these, 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 I know they're tall and some of them are smart, but these are not the ones. Do you have like a hidden son anywhere? You got something going on here? And he says, yeah, I've got this kid named David, but you know. He's outside with the animals. He's kind of short, good looking, just saying. That's how God uses it. And he says, okay, but I'll go get him. And he brings him in and the prophet Samuel says, this is the one God chooses. David didn't fit the part, didn't look the part, and he definitely didn't smell like royalty. Why would God choose him? 
1 Samuel 16, verses 7 says it like this. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, color of your skin, how smart you are, how tall you are, or whatever performance you can do, or, or you know, our gender. But the Lord looks at the heart. You know, I love this about it because God sees your heart. And you may be in here today thinking, why would anybody choose me? But God knows. In fact, 1 Peter 2.9, I love the way it says it like this. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are God's special possession, handpicked by the creator of the universe. You need to know you have value and purpose in this life. You are not a random accident. You are God's special possession. I love what Stephen Hawking, the, one of the most eminent scientists in the world, what he once said. He said, uh, Christians were weak because they were afraid of the darkness. But I know we aren't afraid of the dark. Maybe a dark hallway or something, but you know. We're strong because we're drawn to the light. You know, even John 15, 16, Jesus said it like this. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. God chooses you, church family. But you have to say yes to the coming king. Until the day you have to keep saying yes in your life and everything you do. It's why as Paul is wrapping up his letter to the Thessalonians, he says this beginning in verse 6. You became imitators, mimetes in Greek, like followers of us and of the Lord. For you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy. How do you go through suffering and joy? I mean suffering and still have joy. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God in you will give you the peace, will give you the comfort, will give you everything that you need in the midst of suffering. This was happening to this young church. And so you became a model. The word model in Greek is typos. Uh, so you guys today, you'll have those really fancy, nice little skinny computers that weigh maybe a half a pound. Back in the day, we had something called a typewriter. I see a young people are like, what is that? <laughs> Typewriter is like a giant boulder that we use as our computer. It's huge, about 30 pounds. And, and what you'd have to do, this is the thing. When you typed, it wasn't like your pretty little shiny buttons that felt good and actually like massaged your fingers today or lights showed up. These were dark, big, thick buttons and you had to click the button. It went ding, you know, and, you, know you click that button and it was, it, there, it was control, there was a metal, piece of metal in there somewhere that, was, that had a little letter, a metal letter and it had ink and it would slap that ink and the harder you push the button, the deeper of an imprint on the paper you would get of that letter. You were a typos. It's like in Christ, the harder we get hit, the deeper of an imprint the world should see of Christ in us. That's what he's saying. Your model to all those believers in Macedonia and Achaia, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Sounds a little bit like a mission statement, to know Christ and to... Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's called uh, Repentance. And to, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. At this moment, I want to invite all of our campus pastors to the stage. Listen, church family. Jesus has promised us that he's going to return. He's coming back for his people. But the question is this. 
We know what the promise is, is that he's coming back. But this is the question. What will you do between the promise and the payoff? What will you do in between that time? Because your calling, no matter how difficult your current circumstance is, is that you keep you living a life of faith, love, and hope until Jesus returns. Grace, mercy, and peace. God bless you. Thank you, church family. If you enjoyed the podcast, we encourage you to follow, share it with friends and family, or let us know by tagging us at New Hope Church TV on social media. We would love to connect with you. Thanks for listening.